Welcome back to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the worlds of arts, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hasha Montasser. We're back after our summer break and we have a jam-packed season ahead of us. So please make sure to hit the follow button on any of your favorite podcast players so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Or you can go to thelighthouse.ae slash podcast and subscribe there for free. If you've lived in the Middle East, even for a little while, you've definitely received a package that came to you in whole or in part via Aramex. Long before the days of the Amazons of the world, before e-commerce was a thing, or at least a big thing, before Souq.com, which was later acquired by Amazon, by the way, Noon, and all the other names we've known over more than a decade now, two unlikely co-founders got together to establish a last-mile delivery and logistics company in the Middle East. This was in 1982, and the company they founded was Aramex. It went on to become the first Arab company to list itself on NASDAQ, employing 18,000 people across 70 countries, and emerged as one of the most successful companies in the region. I'm delighted to sit down today with its co-founder and former CEO, Fadi Randour. Fadi was in fact one of the first guests I wanted to speak to when I envisaged the idea of the Lighthouse Conversations as a series of discussions at the Lighthouse in D3 over three years ago. There is so much to unpack in Fadi's own story, the journey of Aramex from single cubicle offices to a logistics powerhouse in over three decades, and then, in 2012, having left Aramex in the capable hands of the new generation he nurtured within the company, Fadi went on to create WAMDA, a venture capital platform and accelerator, and further cemented his place in the MENA startup ecosystem. So we'll be talking to Fadi over two episodes, and what you'll be hearing today is part one of our conversation. Fadi, it's a pleasure to have you here. This has been a long time coming, yes. and I've been uh, after you, quote unquote, to come and tell us a little bit about yourself. So thank you for being here today. It's good to be here. And I think it, for me, it's, I think it's about time for me to, to do that, specifically that this is Aramex's 40th year. So there's... Mabrook, there is, that's, a, that's a landmark. There's a landmark there, yes. It, it, it really is. I was thinking yesterday, uh, I was listening to a podcast, unrelated, but talking about... Sequoia Capital, and they're very early, pre-public, obviously, their private company investment in Apple. And they invested in Apple very early, put a check, I think, of $200,000, something like that, and then sold uh, right after the IPO, made 40x, which is very good return for VC, but missed out, obviously, on... Uh, who knows, thousands of thousands of multiples of that. 10,000x. 10,000x into <laughs> Apple. And I was thinking in that, uh, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about Aramex as truly being one of those stories where it started from a private company that you co-founded, went public, uh, went private, went public again, and it's still today one of the largest and one of the most prominent public companies in the market here in Dubai. So had a venture capitalist given you that first check that return would have also looked extremely impressive. And those opportunities here, we don't see so much. We see some people like yourself now investing in the private space. We see some investors investing in the public space. Very little of those companies that start here from scratch where people could potentially make an investment and take it all the way to the public sphere. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the, the beauty of Aramex, if you want, was uh, that it is still, after 40 years, an independent company. 
And so the, this obsession with exits as such, uh, Aramex exited to a public market. So it stayed as Aramex. It had different shareholders over the years. It had me as a constant shareholder, very patient shareholder. You know, I never sold the share until uh, after until 30 years. Until 30 years. So there is the story. And the value increased over the years. And so I'm lucky in many ways that we never took some offers that came to us much earlier uh, and not selling when I when we were in the public uh, market. And not selling when you left as CEO because... No, I in, stayed. Yeah, in a typical situation, you say, well, now, now I'm a shareholder, now I'm a board member, but I'm not running the ship anymore. I want to take some money off the table. That would yeah, be the and, normal... And the ship was profitable. And so it was viable. Uh, it had depth in management. It was... Uh, it had a powerful brand in the region. I mean, it's not... Uh, tens and tens of billions of dollars, but it's a it's a constant story here. I mean, you you wake up in the morning and there's Aramex, right? And there's... <laughs> that's <laughs> that's the beauty of of the organization. So it's at forty years now. It went public twice, five years on Nasdaq, and since uh, two thousand and five on on the Dubai financial market, and uh, it's still thriving. I mean, it's a. And after three CEOs post me, and all grew up in the organization. So there's a powerful story there in, in RMX, and maybe a lesson to be learned by, by the uh, entrepreneurship ecosystem, by the tech ecosystem, uh, by the regulators. You know, allow companies to go public in our markets so that our companies stay in the region rather than get exits outside by, by non-regional uh, companies. So. Uh, it's good to celebrate exits. I'm not, I'm an investor. Sure. Uh, but there is a much more powerful story with an uh, with, uh, independent company that goes public in our own home markets here. Had the VC venture capital landscape been mature or even in existence back in the day when you founded the company 40 years ago, would you have taken a check from a VC, and if so, do you think the trajectory would have been differently? I would have loved to take a check from a VC, <laughs> if you want my opinion. You know, it took us 15 years to go public uh, on NASDAQ. Uh, it was a tough first 15 years, as you know. I mean, we've spoken about this earlier. You know, the toughest, maybe, uh, life of any uh, startup, if you want to call, call our life of 15 years of a startup. It was. Uh, and, it was crappy. It was independent. Uh, we had to be super creative, super agile. Uh, we had to endure pain of cash flow problems. At the end of the day, we were stubborn and we, were, we persevered and stuck around. And then we went public. And there was, you know, there was that incredible satisfaction and comfort and sleep. Uh, because we had sleepless nights for so, for so long, yes. Had you have had that venture capital institutional check from the beginning, you think that discipline, that ability to squeeze literally the company and the cash flow and all of those things that you did, stretch your balance sheet so hard for so long? I don't think any investor would have invested in Aramex very early on. There was a question mark about, uh, I mean, would you... Would you be able to be successful against the giants, uh, the DHLs, uh, the TNTs, Skypacks at that time of this world? Would a company in the Arab region come out and be a, a company that actually delivers on time? Uh, how do you become global uh, when you don't have too much capital? 
And so we had to be very innovative. And I think the power of, power of Aramex, Aramex would not have been the same company if it did uh, not have uh, this uh, frugality. Mazbut. So if you're uh, we needed to be the extremely entrepreneurial yeah. and very creative in our business model. So in a way, it may have been a blessing in disguise. I mean, it's I know a blessing you're now. You're now a venture capitalist. So. <laughs> so. Hashem, it's a blessing now. I mean, yeah. I am, I, I, we, when uh, Aramex is doing a documentary on 40 years. Amazing. And uh, for me, uh, with all due respect to everyone, after the 15th year, after we went public, Things the like Aramex this. story is the first 15 years of its life. I mean, it is the infrastructure. It is the base that the organization was built on until today. Until today, including the process of going public, because going the process of actually going public is a process that Aramex continues to manage on and today. I mean, what we concluded with was a very powerful base, legally, financially, operationally, that it was tweaked over the years, obviously, but uh, you know. Adhering to SEC standards was was a powerful story. You were the first Arab company to go public yeah. on Nasdaq at yeah. a time when people didn't even know uh, yeah, not easy. what the Middle East is. You know, you don't know what it is until you actually do it. You know, going public on any exchange in the world is difficult. Going public in the in the US is is the diff most difficult of them all. And uh, I I was a skeptic very early uh, on when Bill Kingston, my partner, my late partner, uh, bless his soul suggested that we do Nasdaq and I thought he was crazy but you know as I was as crazy as he was so I said you know you want to jump I'm jumping with you buddy so we I didn't uh, we, the learning I went through is is unique uh, not many people in the region have gone through it not many people in the world go through 100% uh, the the gruesome exercise of actually adhering to SEC standards and doing a roadshow in the United States to professional organizations and and to investment uh, institutions that uh, are tough, you know, these people are not, uh, you know, write their checks after checking you out uh, very well. Where did this appetite for risk come from? This outsized appetite for risk, not looking back, taking many risks from a career perspective with Aramex, even after you had already been quote-unquote successful as a company, you were taking more and more risks, you could have just sort of, you know, said, you know what, I've built something against all the odds, Halas, let me write this out now. You didn't do that. Where does this come from? This innate risk-taking ability. I think if, if somebody came to me today with, with an Aramex story, I would, uh, I would have not been as risk-taking as I was when I was a young boy. Uh, I think age, I think innocence of, of a very early young life, a young a graduate, nothing much to lose, uh, experimentation, entrepreneurship, trial and error were at the core of the story. I mean, I, there was no playbook there. Yeah. I didn't, I, there was nothing for me to learn from other than learning on the job, uh, having a few mentors here and there. I mean, if you want to call them mentors, my father was there. He mentored me a little bit here and there, but he was, he was, rarely, Busy in his own. He was rarely around. I mean, so I had to improvise. I had to learn. I had to do a massive amount of micro mistakes, if you want. And I learned through that, uh, that process, you know, the, the story of the 10,000 hours. So I did my, my maybe million hours of, uh, of work until I was able to be uh, uh, immune uh, to thinking that it was risk. I, I didn't think of it eventually as risk. I thought of it as, as the way things are. 
So I wasn't thinking and sitting back and saying, oh, okay, this is risky. Or this you didn't dwell on it, yeah. I didn't have time to time dwell to, on yeah. it, uh, Hashem. I needed to take decisions right then, then and there on many things. And so when Bill said, go public on NASDAQ, so uh, it, it took me maybe 10 minutes of thinking, okay, here's, you know, there's, there's a legal structure and then there is the financial stuff that we need to do because we were two partners. You know, when you're only two partners, you could... Very different company. <laughs> There's no public scrutiny there. We only scrutinize each other. And then it came at a failure. Uh, the Aramex public story on NASDAQ was a direct result of us failing to raise money in the region in a private placement. Uh, but nobody bought the story. They basically all said, one, you don't own assets. Uh, <laughs> how can you compete with the giants? We don't believe you're going to make it. Your valuation, which was micro, is too much. Uh, sorry, uh, we're not buying. It's incredible how the market and perception of the market has changed. Now, today, not owning assets would be the singular advantage. Asset light has become the a mantra. The whole story of the sharing economy is about not owning assets. You know, they discovered it now. I discovered it by, by yeah. fire. Yeah. Not, not, uh, in, not intentionally in the very early days, but very intentionally, as I understood the power of it. So when we went public on NASDAQ, if, uh, and I was reviewing because this is our 30th year, so I, I'm a hoarder, by the way. I, I, I keep everything. I never throw anything. So I have the first presentation that I did in, in, in the roadshow. And uh, one, one of the biggest slides for me was we're an asset light company. Yeah. And they loved it. They understood it there. They, understood, they loved it because, you know, I'm spending money on the customer experience, not on owning buildings. Who the heck cares about whether you own your building or not? Who cares? Really, because I'm, I'm in the business of delivering packages. I, you're in the business of perfecting product. You're not in the business of saying, you know, I have assets uh, that are worth this much in buildings, but, but I'm not in the real estate business. I am in the package delivery business, in the service business. So, so and then we understood that there were so many people that will provide you uh, their assets at, at a fraction of the cost and at a flexible uh, uh, capability. Meaning, you know, I didn't need to own an aircraft. You could buy space on an aircraft. You could rent space. You could, you could lease your cars, etc., etc. As you started having a series of small wins at the beginning, did that boost your confidence in your in that instinct that you have because it's clearly instinct right you're in uncharted territory um there's no playbook you are making things up literally as you go along but you clearly had very strong instincts which you followed over time maybe with trial and error so as you were seeing some wins because going to let's just say the first 15 years to the path of an ipo clearly at that point the company was a success maybe not the size that it is today but it was success did you feel emboldened by these wins or did you feel more doubtful? No, no, very emboldened. Look, mm. um, the biggest revelation was this region was a very complicated region. So somebody that offers uh, global express companies, global courier companies, the ability to deliver this region on an independent basis, uh, because it's complicated and they were not thinking of it, was, was a revelation. So for our first pivot was... We wanted to build an express company that took packages from the region globally, like Federal Express or whoever. The first pivot was, this is not going to work. I, have n I had nothing to offer 
a client in the region to take their packages globally very early on, I'm saying. Yeah. That was different from DHL. Then DHL, I mean, it, uh, I mean not different, even, uh, even uh, no, no, a inferior. few steps worse. Inferior, yeah. But what I could offer very early on. The reverse. Was, was offering Federal Express, Airborne Express. I'll be your guy. And every single courier company on earth. The Middle East is complicated. I've solved it. The problem of complication in the Middle East was solved by Aramex. We were the courier company of courier companies delivering practically for every single express company that did not have an office in the Middle East. Federal Express took us four or five years, but we cracked it. And they stuck around with us for nine years until they got their license in Saudi Arabia in 1996. Airborne Express stuck around with us for 18 years until they, was, they were acquired by, by DHL. And then so many companies, most of the people have not heard of, but they were very big companies in the US, Burlington Northern, uh, Emery, uh, uh, Purelator Courier. These were the core of the express industry in the United States of America. We did roadshows, Bill and I, and I was obviously the, the uh, Bill was, was the chairman, but was never involved in operations, but had a network. He got us the meetings with all these people, and we would go knock on their doors and say a very simple statement. You have packages to the Middle East. You give them now to DHL to deliver for you. I'm going to be your independent outsourcing partner to deliver your packages. I will deliver on your paperwork. You will maintain your name, and you're not going to give your packages to your competitor. How powerful a story is that? And they really didn't care yeah. how... Uh, sophisticated was my network in the Middle East because for them, you know, Middle East, maybe we get a little bit of a package here and there, but we're not, we're domestic companies in the United States of America. Why, uh, why, why do we care? Uh, and for them, for, we, had, we opened an office in New York to basically say, it's not complicated. All you need to do, you all have JFK offices, just drop this Middle East stuff here, or I'll send you a truck from uh, a van from our office to pick up those packages for you. And for you, the Middle East is an office for Aramex in New York, full stop. No sophistication, you don't need to understand the geography, nor the complication of the market. That was solved by this little dinky company called Aramex. <laughs> it's incredible once you figured this piece out. Oh, so powerful. Was there a Eureka moment where you said that, you know what, yes. we have to be the guys was that, or did yes. it just happen? Yani, how yeah. did you get there? What happened is Airborne Express, Bill had a relationship with, with somebody there. We, we had a meeting with them and uh, we offered them to be partners in Aramex. You know, there's a whole Harvard business uh, yeah. uh, review. Yeah, which is how I, how, how I did case. it. Uh, there's an article that I wrote about this, but uh, they, they, we offered them to, for, for $50,000 uh, or $100,000 to own, I don't know, twenty five. 50% of the company, I, I have to find them. But they said, no, look, we're not interested in, invest in, in, in investing, but I'll tell you solve what. Solve our problem. They said, not even solve my problem. They said, we're just starting to think expansion. We're do Europe, obviously everybody, you know, United States, Europe, there's nothing, uh, and then Asia. Uh, we're opening an office in London. Why don't you talk to, uh, his name is Alan Spilliers, uh, bless him. He was, we worked together for ages. So go see Alan, and then maybe we can uh, find a way to do work together. And so I talked to Alan. They were also, uh, uh, they owned assets in the U.S., but they wanted, to exp uh, they wanted to expand globally without acquisitions and with the minimal assets possible. So click, 
We didn't have assets. They didn't have assets. I basically went and sold the story to, to Alan, who basically said, oh, yeah, okay. I have packages in the Middle East. You can take them. And that then, was it. And then click. And then as you walked around Heathrow, Heathrow, there were hundreds of courier companies in Heathrow. Hundreds, literally. Uh, you walk around Charles de Gaulle Airport before Orly. It was Orly before Charles de Gaulle. I, you know, I'm, I'm from the Orly days, <laughs> long before, before Charles de Gaulle was there. Imagine that. And so, uh, and then you go to every major hub. Orly was serving Africa. Heathrow was serving the UK, Europe, and British-speaking uh, Africa. And so there were hubs around the world. So for me, it was going to Singapore, Hong Kong, every single hub around the world, every courier company had a small operation hubs. And all I had to do is say, I'm your Middle East boy. I'm going to deliver for you. I'll deliver in the Arab world. Forget about the complication. I've, I've cracked it. And that's all I needed, by the way, from, you know, the region was very complicated in many ways, other than the politics, wars, uh, and the perception of the region, foreign ownership, you know, eh, Everything that you hear about a little bit today, much less than before, was a massive story then, right? But the biggest story there then was post offices was, were not going to give you licenses to operate yeah. a courier company. You were a competitor. They yeah. had not gone into the process of reform to understand that you need to open up and deregulate and have these courier companies. So I was also... Me personally, I'm saying I because I was yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the guy that did it. Yeah. I was in the business of actually knocking on doors and knocking on doors yeah. of every single postal authority. Who are in no rush, by the way. You're no, in a rush. Right, They're not in a rush, right? They didn't care. Yeah. You know, for them, we were Why the enemy. The enemy. Enemy. Yeah. You're in the guy our raison d'etre. And who are you? The ability to take risks while keeping your feet on the ground, so to speak, is a characteristic that, in many ways, has defined Fadi's career. We'll dig into that right after the short break. Welcome back. You're listening to my conversation with Fadi Ghandour. So there was this risk-taking ability, there was a tenacity, but you also had pragmatism. When you're telling the story now, you go to the Egyptian government, you go to the Jordanian government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You weren't bleary-eyed thinking, oh, they're going to just open the doors and be like, ahl sahlan. Not a single door was open. No, that's my point. But you not clearly, a single door, you, except in the UAE. You clearly were not shocked by that. Was that pragmatism also a function of your own personal story and as a family? I mean, your father came as a political refugee from Lebanon to Jordan. You have literally lived the Arab uh, uh, turmoil story at home, personally, before you lived it in your own business. Do you think that in some way informed that prag pragmatism in the sense of, look, it's a complicated region. I will find ways, but this is not going to be easy. Completely. You know, my father's political history weighed on us, uh, was part of our uh, narrative yeah. as a family. Yeah. We lived it, we, we actually celebrated it, we felt uh, it, it made us who we are today. Uh, and it played because we felt that uh, the stat status quo was never On sustainable. Your yeah. uh, we, were, we always rebelled against You have to rattle the cages. We quite, this came from him and, and most of us, I mean, every... Uh, uh, Arab family that had 
uh, a view on the political situation and the economic situation would would have children that if cared enough that would grow up wanting to change the status quo. It was core for me. You know, at the university, I did not miss a single demonstration uh, for any cause you can imagine around the region. So, I, I mean, it's a... Uh, I'm, 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 it also shaped me. So, and my father encouraged me. I, I remember I was having dinner very early on when I went. I went to Washington D.C., so the center of politics in the United States. I studied at George Washington University. I was having dinner with my father and a friend of mine, well, young boys, freshman year, maybe sophomore year. And so I was talking to my dad, saying, you know, I went to this demonstration. And so a friend of my friend, who was a very close friend of mine, said, you know, I'm not involved in politics. I am. I'm just focusing on my studies. And my father gave him a lecture. This is part of your experience in college. You should don't you, you should study yes, but uh, but go. So for me it was a celebration. You know, if my father was embracing me, saying, "Look, my boy is a bit of a rebel," and so let him. You know, let him find his path. He said, "Yeah, go, go but be active politically." But this is very unusual because of his political activism. You would think that he would do the exact opposite, right? Saying, "Look, Freddie, stay out of politics. It hasn't served me well." You know, I moved to business, embrace business. But he, the fact that he understood, it's part of your growing up, essentially. It was part of a growing up, but he always told me a lesson, never enter politics in the region. But so yeah, being, fair being aware and being, and, and stating an opinion and uh, having an activist view of life in Washington, D.C., I mean, that shaped my character also. It shaped my character because I cared about the Palestinian cause. And when you go to Washington, D.C. in 1977 to promote a Palestinian cause, you are an underdog <laughs> by any measure. Yeah. And so the learning about the history of the region and the history of the Palestinian cause and being passionate about it was not enough. You needed to have knowledge because we were in debates, we were in discussions. I mean, convincing people was it needed to be factual. It's not uh, only to say, oh, oh, we have a just cause and we, we, people will say, oh, you have a just cause, let me hug you. No, you had to say. It honed your. It, it, it shaped me in how I was understood. Business also later in life, you know, the dialogue, the dialectic of studying political science, studying philosophy, studying history, the complication, the nuances, were such incredible benefit for me. So I was, you know, I sometimes regret not being an engineer, but I also find it a blessing to be to have studied. Uh, political science, because I was in the business of, of, of a complicated region that required the ability to have a nuanced brain. By definition, my brain was not uh, black and white. It was supremely colorful. And by definition, I, I had to see things differently in, in saying there is a possibility to actually get there, even though it looks like you can't. Yeah. <laughs> You were quoted in one of the articles as saying you grew up in a house of women. You had all your siblings for sisters. And my all mom, siblings are female. My father Absolutely. was not around. And then your mother, who was a powerful figure in your life, by all matches, and ran the house, right? Ran the house. She, uh, absolutely did. So how was that? Because your father obviously clearly had a lot of influence on you for the way you think. But ultimately, he wasn't around most of the time. He was busy you know, building a company and you were there with four sisters and a powerful mother and you were the only boy and not the oldest one. Explain to us this dynamic. Well, you know, I, I, I say that and I'm, I'm asked 
many times about being in a house of women. You know, being living, growing up in a house of women, in a liberal house of women. You know, yeah. my father was was super liberal. Yeah. A blessing, I think. Meaning, uh, for him, the girls are uh, equal to the boys. Simple formula, and they will define themselves. I grew up the same way, by the way. They so will I'm, define, I'm, and that's fantastic. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, I'm very familiar. Uh, with and this for me, uh, appreciating that. Uh, you know, say they say single boys uh, in families are spoiled. Uh, maybe a little bit spoiled, but not necessarily. I didn't feel uh, I was spoiled. They threw me in, in actually because I was such a naughty boy. I, I was thrown in, in at, at the age eleven in boarding school. I mean, nobody does that too. Uh, you know, now they do, but not at the time. No, nobody does. Nobody throws their son at ten or eleven years old in a boarding school. Uh, but that's was because I was, you know, again, rebellious. And yeah, they felt they had, you have to but some being with women in the house got me to appreciate of having that support. That other half, yeah, not I support women, smart, intelligent, capable, uh, equal, have to be much more, much smarter. You know, my, my sisters were very creative girls. And I'm uh, sure hardworking. They are uh, again, you know, best friends. Nothing more loyal than a sister. Yeah, nothing well, more loyal that. than a sister. I, agree with, I can second that. But being I'm the lucky. only uh, uh, boy in a family of five children, did you feel the pressure uh, to follow into your father's footsteps in terms of did his success? Did you feel intimidated by it or simply motivated by it? No, I, you know, my father was my, still is. Uh, role model for you. Soul, role model. You know, watching him from afar, he, I mean, his politics, I embraced his politics. His aspiration that the region can be better and should be better and worked in his business life to actually think of it this way. So you, you didn't know, feel like, oh, I need to also do something, you know, I mean, yeah, sometimes uh, one gets intimidated. Uh, you know. I, I didn't feel intimidated. That's a blessing. I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I didn't feel intimidated, but I understood it later in life. Mm. I understood it later in life. I, as I worked with him very early on, to, I wanted him to help me in, in getting access to some of his friends in the region so that I can go and find a way to get Aramex licensed, right? He would say, you know, go see this guy, go see this guy. And none of them took me seriously, obviously. You know, he's a son of Ali. We love Ali. Uh, Ali is a friend of ours, but... Oh, this boy is crazy to think that he is going to come here and want to partner with us uh, in a business to compete with DHL. I mean, and they all basically said, Ammo, you know, uh, we're, we're a big group here. We, you know, you're, you're just yeah. delusional to do that without saying, being yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I had to go and find my own way. I mean, that's, he also, you know, look, uh, there's so much that could be said about, you know, his father did this and his father did that. The fact of the matter, he basically said, you know, to swim a little bit, right? I said, yes. He says, here, I'm going to carry you. I'm going to throw you in the sea and go manage. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I might help you navigate here and there. But boy, you have to swim alone. And, and no you know what? I, in my swimming alone, I basically understood that at the end of the day, I have to find my own way. So I've, we found, uh, if, you look, if you look at the very early partners of Aramex, they were all small operators that looked like Aramex. Uh, I mean, a small travel shop here, a small uh, freight forward here that all wanted that extra dollar. They didn't care that it was millions of dollars. They cared that this guy is going to get us maybe, I mean, packages from Airborne Express to deliver 100 packages a week. 
at $10 or $15. Uh, it's nice money for these small companies. So the, the Aramex story was a small and medium-sized company, an SME business that partnered with SME partners. because uh, And that was uh, when I was thrown in the sea to go find my way. What's also interesting to me is that the Aramex story is also a story that's not about Taurith, so for example, your children were not are not in the company, never joined the company. It was not from father to son to exactly. grandson. That's my point. And whether that's good or bad, I don't know. Each family has. It's not a family business. But how did your we, I, own... I understood also, back to your original story, that was part of me as I was growing up in the organization and appreciating and understanding the importance of attracting talent that sticks around and sees its future in the organization. And the only way for you to do that was to actually create this institutional process that this is a company where you can grow and become a CEO and replace the founder when the founder leaves. They're not going to sit there, the people that run Aramex today, and say, well, his son is sitting here and I'm, I'm going to, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm in transit here. It's not my company. I can second this from my own personal experience. When I was at EFG running an asset management business, we were the largest in the region at the time, running about 8 or $9 billion. And we thought we were powerful enough to be able to meet all the companies we were investing in, which were public companies, including Aramex. And I would call, we would call up the companies to meet with them. Most of them will send us their IR representative. And when we called your office... I don't even remember if an, uh, there was an assistant. You answered. You immediately fixed the meeting. We came to see you, and you gave us an hour of your time. And in my almost 15 years being in this business, this was one of two companies. Actually, it was OCI and others, and yourself that did that. In most other cases, they hid behind IR, and it was very telling. And the other telling thing for me at the time, this was 15 years ago, was when you came in and you came with a cadre of senior managers, they were all Arab. And most of them had been with you more or less from the start. They were younger, but so you created that culture. Talk to me a little bit about this, because I think it's very much at the core of Aramex. Another revelation is that I was never going to be able to recruit somebody with experience with the big boys. It was one, two things. One, when you work for a brand that is extremely powerful, you don't have to do much work. With all due respect, I mean, people are, are going to go wild with this statement now, <laughs> right? No, you don't. Because the company, the brand sells itself. And at that time, you know, DHL, FedEx, whatever you want to call it, before FedEx came to the region, you say DHL, I mean, you didn't need to explain much. You go, knock on the door, here's our prices, thank you for the business. There was no skill set for you to be an incredible business development person because there was nothing for you to explain. If you're an Aramex person and you wanted to go get a client, you are going to suffer miserably in explaining how this no. package was going to get there equal to the largest competitor. So here's the story. Could never recruit anybody from the big boys. So you started from the ground up. Two, all the big boys were non, at that time, non-regional, so that not a single manager at any competitor's company was from the son the of the region. Yeah. Not a single one. I'm not exaggerating. No. I'm uh, with senior responsibility. Yeah. 
And the culture of the big organization was a culture of centralization. You know, I'm here, I'm selling DHL, and it's very powerful, and the decision happens somewhere else. So we needed one to have people that are hustlers and runners and believers in a company that comes out from the region that actually can compete. You needed people, uh, and so believers in the region are the sons of the region. Some people call uh, a Jordanian in, in Dubai an expatriate. He's a half expatriate because he feels at home, if you want to call it. You also so we're, we're regional expatriates. There Correct. is, all of us have this pan-Arab uh, passion I agree with for that. the region in general. All of us. I mean, uh, we all care about at, everything at that happens levels, in correct. the region. Uh, w w when you pack your bag, you pack your bag and go back to the region. <laughs> you move from the region to the region. And so uh, these were the people that were going to stick around. And I wanted people who had no experience because uh, if you're going to bring in people with experience, they're not going to have the skill set because they're going to say, oh, it's so difficult to sell the Aramex brand. I, I was at DHL and it was, you know, I really didn't need to do much. And number two, three, they never were interested in coming to work for us because never, they never thought we were going to survive anyway. So you needed people who were young, uh, bulldozers, uh, runners, hustlers, believers, and and people who thought that there could be a career, a career in, in, in this So you structured crap. it as such, you created a management program. And so correct? we created the management program, but we created the culture. You know, the, you know, the biggest asset of Aramex, after 40 years now, I'm saying, the biggest asset and the single most important asset in Aramex was its corporate culture. That corporate culture of entrepreneurship, trial and error, uh, go hustle, uh, focus on the client. Uh, we're an assetless organization. We're very flat. When you say you came and saw me, yeah. because I'm, f uh, you know, the organization was flat. The people that you saw from Aramex that you said they're all Arabs. I think, you know, I think nothing against foreigners, but uh, no, you know, we had a different. We had to build a differentiated process and management and the culture of management and the culture of it the organization where uh, an organization that thought we could conquer the world. Well, it could have been delusional early on. <laughs> if you had looked at my presentations in the annual managers and leaders meeting of IMX, you would think we were a multi-billion dollar organization. This is called aspirational. And I, I, you know, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I was a preacher for the longest period of time of a culture that says it can be done and, and don't, don't ever... Doubt it. How important was loyalty to you in that respect? Because many of them stayed with you for a very long time as yes, well. Yes, and they're still, you know, the people that manage Aramex today are people They were that, all graduates from the whole all, program. All 25-year veterans. So loyalty was important to you. Look, a leader, any leader of any organization needs loyalty. So loyalty comes with delivery. So my life in Aramex as an entrepreneur was a life of promises and deliveries at all times. Meaning, you know, you will miss here and there. But the, the story that said, we're going to be here, we're going to dominate the region, we're going to build a very robust organization, uh, no matter what the, dif the difficulties, I'm going to stick around with you. you, know, I, you know, ju just like they were loyal to me, I was loyal back to them. If you stick around with me long enough, you will be rewarded. 
you will be rewarded in, in growing in the job and you will be rewarded financially. If your salary was $1,000 today, if you stick around, it'll be a couple hundred thousand dollars down the road. And you will be a leader in this organization and you will be an organization that you are proud uh, uh, to work in. Maybe there were many doubters, but you know, most of the you know, 10, 15 people who built this organization from the very early days, the IPO on NASDAQ was for me the ultimate delivery. This is when the big promise that this organization was really here to stay, a powerful brand and going places. You know, we had a kitchen of about four or five people or six people that were basically putting together that IPO stuff. But I was the, the front end guy. I, I went on a hundred roadshow yeah. meetings. Yeah. And in January two, 1997, uh, mid-January, our first trade happened. We got the first batch of money in the bank account. That was the day when we basically said, I basically said, um, I've delivered on, on the promise of the past 15 years. And that's where you had more believers. And that's why we could recruit anyone on earth that to come and work for yeah, us. Now you have a liquid currency. The, well. We are the ultimate attraction. I mean, the reputation of the company. Skyrocketed. Not only for, for going public. But this entrepreneurial story was so powerful, including us. We were overwhelmed by it. Aramex's story is one of many firsts. And as Fadi points out, their listing on Nasdaq in 1997 was a significant moment, not just for Aramex, but for Arab companies as a whole. In our next episode, we'll get a glimpse, actually more than a glimpse, of Fadi's thoughts on what makes a good leader his investment philosophy as a venture capitalist, and we'll even discuss that hot potato topic, Web 3.0. Thank you for joining us in part one of our conversation with Fadi Randor. This episode was hosted by me, Hashem Montasser, produced by Chirag Desai, and our content director is Farah Sharif. We'll be back with part two next week, so see you then.